I'm on a series, and um, it's, it's the Jesus series, and I want to go to ultimately land on the verse that led me to Christ, John chapter 14, verse 6. But first, I want to read from Matthew's gospel, the 16th chapter, and I, and I want to just kind of look at the context that this verse uh, is coming from and Actually, Jesus gathered the disciples at Caesarea Philippi. Everybody say Caesarea Philippi. Now, you see Caesarea, the root for Caesarea is Caesar, all right? So this is a time. Before Jesus was born, uh, the the Pomley, the the leader of the Roman Empire, wanted to expand into the Jewish area. And... um, so I'm going to elaborate on that, and I'm going to read something from the National Geographic story of Jesus. I actually prefer the New American Standard story of Jesus, but then they, they got, they're not missing it on some of the history, so I want to read it to you. Um, these, they sell these at Christmas and Easter to make money, so it's going to be pretty good for me to read it to you. Matthew chapter 16, that was funny, you should have laughed. Okay, verse 18, actually verse 13. But now Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. You know, we could just stop there. Just Jesus showing up. Jesus came. In this context, as I read this to you, it's going to encourage you. Because it's not dissimilar to the times we're in now. And uh, things cycle. And the society had some maladies and some weirdnesses very similar then now. And uh, so it's good for us to see this. And it says... He came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. I'm so, so glad he shows up. He showed up in Southern California in the 1970s, Jesus movement, and rescued me. And I'm glad he, he's showing up. He showed up in St. Louis during the Jesus movement and roused a bunch of people in denominational churches, got them filled with the Holy Spirit. Churches like this just started to emerge. God raised us up in that season. And, uh, and it says here, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is. Jesus was asking, what's the, what's the mob mentality? What's current philosophical uh, uh, opinion? What's the viewpoint? He asked the disciples. And as a mature question, and he's really sincere about it, and he, and he takes a survey with his, his followers, and, and they thoughtfully respond, well, some say you're John the Baptist, and others, Elijah. Uh, or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. I was watching an interview with uh, uh, Joe Rogan interviewing Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro is an observant Jewish man. Uh, Joe Rogan seems to be a seeker. And uh, he was asking him about Jesus. And and, uh, and Ben Shapiro said, you know, from his position in his Judaism, he said, we don't believe that Jesus is is the Lord. You know, in fact, we believe, I believe that he is like, other Jew, other Jewish people that led a revolt and got crucified for it. So that was his, what he was saying about it. And it wasn't offensive, it was his opinion, and it was actually in a, a fair uh, debate, and he was being honest. I appreciate that. And um, then uh, Joe Rogan said, do you th- so you think he's a prophet? He said, no, we don't believe he's a prophet. Uh, do you believe he's risen from the dead? No, we don't believe he's risen from the dead. Now, the, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, but the Pharisees actually did believe in a resurrection. So there are... Uh, different flavors of opinions. And that's why Jesus said, what's the big cross-pollinating general consensus? And, well, they think you're this, they think you're that. 
And that's and in this case, it was pretty good. At least they were acknowledging that he was a prophet. Some people were just downplaying that he was the Galilean uh, carpenter, the son of Joseph, and they were being dismissive. But at least at this point, there was some respect to the rabbi. But not until Peter made the comment, and that actually came prompted by the question that you and I have to answer. It's like, it's okay for you, us to know the general population. I mean, there are, there are polls and surveys now where so many percentage of people believe in God, so many don't. Uh, this week, I paid a bill uh, with a $20 bill. I paid at a cash register. When I pulled it out of my wallet, I was sad to see that someone took a Sharpie and on the back of the 20 crossed out God on In God We Trust. Just a little cross out. Two things. I mean, you're not supposed to deface a bill, but trying to Sharpie God out of the picture is not uncommon. And it made me aware and got me out of my religious bubble because God doesn't want us to live in a bubble. He wants us to be, have our heads up and, and awareness. That's why he said, who do people say that I am? Well, who do you say that I am? Now, Peter steps up. Hallelujah, like he often does. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, this is opposite of the debate between Joe Rogan, uh, the podcaster, and Ben Shapiro, the podcaster, the influencers. The, he, Peter is coming in and he's saying, I see you as more than a prophet. I see you even more than just a conventional human being. You are the Christ. Now, he's saying, he's from a Jewish context. He's saying, all that I learned in Hebrew school about the Messiah, you're the culmination of that. You're it. You're the, you're the Christ. That's the Greek word, Christos, for a Messiah, Mashiach. And so they, they, those, were, those, those languages, there were dual languages there in Israel at the time because uh, the, the ancient world had been Hellenized by the, the Greco-Roman thing. That's the season in which Jesus came. Now remember in Genesis 3, when Lucifer went into the garden to lure Adam and Eve off track, and unfortunately they forfeited their place in rebellion, they sinned against God, they, they, they drank the Kool-Aid, they were banished from the garden, uh, they did the thing God told them not to do, Lucifer lied to them, and they took the lie, they took the bait, and it messed up all of humanity. That's why everything is off kilter. Even for Christians, we look through a glass darkly, and we groan in ourselves, it says in Romans 8, but we're not depressed. Uh, we, we see things the way they really are, but we're optimistic because we know our God is faithful. There'll be a rapture in the church, and then there'll be a second coming. Uh, God is bringing to pass his purposes, and uh, certainly in that season, that was 4,000 years after God in the garden said, one day... The seed of the woman is going to crush the head or bruise the head of that serpent under his heel. The, 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 his enemies will be a footstool. And it took 4,000 years. But God, hey, he's not slow. He's perfect in his timing. I don't like the notion that God's the God of the last minute because that's absolutely, it attributes some sort of distortion to God. God is perfect, precise, and excellent in all of the things he does, including his timing. So, you know, the early church kept expecting Jesus to come back uh, within days of the ascension. In fact, they were standing there looking in the sky, and, and, and the angels had to say, hey, go away now, get busy, and, because they thought he's coming right back. And, and that actually is a good manner with which to live, always expectant 
that any moment he'll come like a thief in the night. And then that'll help give us a passion, make us uh, go toward holiness, help us to stay repentant and resist the tempter and, and pray big prayers and dream big dreams and plan and write. We're supposed to do that. But Jesus comes in on the fullness of the times. Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And then in the Message Bible, Jesus says something basically like, well, now you've told me, you, you've seen who I am. Blessed are you, Simon, Simon Barjona. Uh, let's see what it looks like if we can get it in the Message Bible. Uh, I just threw that at them. Thank you. Simon Peter said, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus came back. God bless you, Simon, son of Jonah, exclamation point. You didn't get that answer out of books or from teachers, or from watching the news cycle, or from going to seminary, or from getting the opinion of others. But my Father in heaven, God himself, let you in on this secret of who I really am. Revelation came. And I want to talk about this as we finish, about how the revelation came to my lost, pluralistic, relativistic, numb, dull brain in my mouth-breathing teenage years and how God revived me with truth. You know the truth and the truth will set you free. Devil's hostile toward truth. He's the father of lies. Frederick Nietzsche came along and tried to dismantle the Judeo-Christian reality. His dad was a Lutheran pastor. He died young. It, it kind of warped uh, and torqued Frederick Nietzsche's mind or heart and he got bitter and he's genius, brilliant, but in a diabolical way and introduced darkness to the human race he's the patron saint of relativism and he he brought in such distortion and uh and it's still the devil's tried to use it as a tool against modernity postmodern world not much different than the roman period it's seasons and cycles nothing is new under the sun but this is our season this is our time and so we've got to face what we're really dealing with be in the world but not of it, have our heads up, be on the alert, be, but not be worried, uh, uh, realize that, that in the end times, difficult times will come. The thing we just saw in the news in Maine, war in, in uh, southern Europe, war over in the Middle East, I mean, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famine, pestilence, and so forth. We just had a, a biological warfare hit in the last four years, and I mean, it just tried to take out, uh, disrupt, kill lives, and kill livelihood. And so yet, here we are as a church, uh, churches, things we've been through. I talk to other pastors. It's a unique time to be alive. And yet, on the other hand, we can go to the scriptures and we've seen history repeat itself. The Roman Empire was thriving until it wasn't. The Western civilization now is uh, sadly wheezing and bloated with some of its same indicators uh, pluralism, idolatry, uh, separation, taking a Sharpie and scratching out God off a $20 bill? Come on. It's going to take more than a Sharpie, devil. <laughs> See, I'm up here trying to take and make that Sharpie invisible ink and get, get God back front and center. Paul the Apostle said this to the church at Corinth. He said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Listen, I study profusely. I'm current in the news, always have been. 
I used, to, I used to get news periodicals, read the newspaper, watch the news. I still stay current, and I try to keep current so I'm not in the dark. But I also now have realized the level of propaganda and the sight and sound generation we're in and its manipulation. So now I've got to ferret through because I just want to have information and facts. I really don't want to have opinion put on me. I want to know the truth. I want to understand so I can make discernment and I can be, uh, 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 you know, make scr- good scrutinizing decisions, right? Right? Including, you know, badgering people. You need to do this. You need to do that. During COVID, I had people, you need to be in this camp. You need to be in this camp. It's like, man, I just, I just want, to, I want to make Jesus known, and I want to get to know him. I want my kids to be trained up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I relate to this family coming in and saying, could, would you, could you get an agreement with my son and my daughters? I, and we do, and we are. And I'm expecting a, a potency in that, results in that. It's going to drive them through the challenges of life. I know with what you're dealing with. God, he said, listen, oh, this is so good. I'm, get, I'm getting back to John 14, but just let me finish this. Come on, you guys, help me out here. You're, you're roughing me up here. L- l- listen to this. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said to him, Oh, I didn't finish that. He said, you just told me who I am. Now let me tell who you who you are. It says in the Message Bible, who you really are. You are a joint heir with Jesus. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. You are a new creation in him. You're seated with Christ in heavenly places. You are now part of the body of Christ. Any one of us who has surrendered their life to Jesus. And when you go to your parties with your friends or you go to work and you're interacting with people... You are a carrier of the presence of God. Not obnoxious. You don't have to be offensive. You don't have to be weird and rude. You don't have to be religious and be a fanatic. But you are a carrier of something called the light. In fact, Jesus said you are the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. And I'm telling you, don't be disturbed by the darkness around you. I'm not worried about the darkness. I have confidence that the light will pierce through the darkness. And we will see a favorable outcome. Hallelujah. You're making me preach. I'm trying to teach. Okay, Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Birch. Now, what did it say in the, in, the living, in the message Bible? He says, I'm going to tell you who you are. You, who you really are. Look at that again. I'm going to tell you who you are. Who you really are. Wow. You're Peter, a rock. This is the rock on which I will put together my church. A church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. Hallelujah. And I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. And that's powerful. And that deserves a consideration. Because Jesus has come to restore us back to God. And here's what happened in the fall. Uh, The fall distanced us from God because of sin. Sin separates people from God. All of us got detached from the source of all good when Adam and Eve fell. By our yielding to temptation, we forfeited the prize and were doomed to drift aimlessly and stay empty until and when and then Jesus came in on the scene to give life and to give it abundantly. John 10.10. Paradise was lost. The pre-fall glory was disturbed, paradise restored. Jesus came came to restore us back to God and develop and advance his kingdom in the earth. 
redeemed, forgiven, seated with him in heavenly places, new creations, the righteousness of God in Christ. There has been an effort, however, led by Satan to discredit and to downplay who Jesus is. It's more than a sharpie on the God part of in God we trust. Uh, it's very similar, and I look at the, the moment Jesus came in on the scene. So I'm going to read this to you from the book my wife got me, uh, and I want to read this just a little clip to a couple paragraphs. The world of Jesus, a region dominated by a mighty superpower, Rome. Now this is the context of Caesarea Philippi. This is the context of John chapter 14. This is the mindset Very similar but different. The ancients were stuck in the same patterns as modernity. So listen to what it says. The life of Jesus coincided with one of the seminal periods of human history. The rise of the Roman Empire led by Augustus uh, when much of Europe, Western Asia, and Northern Africa fell under the sway of the Roman Imperator. The unfolding of Rome's imperial power would have profound influence on Jesus, his ministry, and then the resulting growth of the early church and Christianity. In 63 BC, before Jesus was born, a whole generation, the Roman general Pompey had led his legions from Syria south to Judea, which at the time was a kingdom ruled by the Jewish Hasmonean dynasty. Pompey captured Jerusalem and thus extinguished the flame of Jewish independence that would be, not be rekindled except for a couple of seasons in the revolts of right, right before 70 AD and then another one in 132 to 135 AD. Uh, those Jewish revolts had a resurgence of Jewish independence, but it wasn't until the 20th century that there was a reviving, which happened in 1948 and is being challenged even to this day. Roman control of Judea brought many changes. Chief among them was the reintroduction, notice this, of pagan gods in the sacred soil of Israel. This is what Rome brought. It was called, there's a technical word for it called syncretism. This happened in the days of Elijah when Jezebel, the Baal worshiper, married Ahab, the weak and sloppy leader. And she came in with her idolatrous domination, and God would not have a mixture of true Jehovah worship with worship of idols. And so Elijah famously went up on Mount Carmel, which is just east of Haifa in modern Israel, up on the mountain, and called fire down on a wet sacrifice. And if you want to read about it in Kings, you could read it. God did an adjustment in that moment, but this Compared to that, when Jesus came in on the scene, in the, 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 this was the precursor to the MTV, seduction, drug, sex, rock and roll, uh, uh, po- po- the kind of downplay of reverence for God and the upplay of loving of pleasure called hedonism. That was certainly part of why Rome fell as certainly a problem we see in modern time. But yet so, we, we, we kind of get a grasp on this. Roman control of Judea brought many changes. Chief among them was that reintroduction of idols. Now, little wonder then that ordinary Jews harbored a deep resentment against the Romans because of the idolatry. 
As they were admonished in Leviticus and Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, don't embrace idolatry, uh, you know, come out from among them and be separate. Yet many of Judea's elites were attracted to the luxury of Roman civilization. So there was a seduction. And that revealed a fact of the Augustan Revolution. It mostly favored the upper social strata of territories it absorbed. Vassal kings, landed gentry, and enterprising merchants eagerly collaborated with the occupiers and thus reaped the rewards of integration with the Roman economy. So there again was a syncretism and a blend. The impact of the vast majority of peasants, however, was exactly the reverse. Before, where most had been left to lead quiet lives of subsistence farming, primarily serving to support their families, the empire now put immense, intense pressure on agricultural areas to create surpluses for export to its developing markets. That would have a devastating effect on farming communities such as Galilee. So there was taxation, there was pressure, Not only did they bring in the foods for their own surviving, but they were now required to feed the monster beast of the occupier. And it was a, this is, into this environment Jesus came. When John saw him, John the Baptist saw him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God uh, who takes away the sins of the world. Rome at that, or Israel at that point was yearning for a military leader. And I think they had their timing flipped. Because Jesus in the second coming is coming back on a horse with his hosts and he's going to take charge as king. And and it will be uh, that kind of framework. But he came first as the lamb to come and and sacrifice to get the sin condition dealt with for the Jew and the non-Jew. So that the message of Jesus would proliferate throughout the nations. And that there, there were only, I don't know how many million alive 2,000 years ago, but population has been swelling. And I'm believing God for the population of heaven to be occupied and for hell to have vacancy. And I'm believing God that this message of Jesus will be so carried with such accuracy and such anointing and strength and power, confirmed with signs and wonders, that we will see a harvest amongst the lost as we see a revival in our own hearts. Boy, I need one. You need one. Our church needs one, our community, by state area, America, I'm believing God. And when I read about Rome, I'm not going to judge because I see it. You know, I see it reflected in our times now. When I, when I see, I see wars and rumors of wars. I'm not wringing my hands. I'm lifting up my hands because I know eventually our redemption is drawing nigh. We're seeing the, we're seeing any, a time frame. There's a covenant we have with God, but then there also are seasons And we're in the end of the church age, as they call it. And we're coming into a time that we're going to see the fulfillment, and we are seeing the fulfillment of things. David Ben-Gurion, on his desk, I know this because a friend of mine saw a copy, a worn, tattered copy of, uh, of The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. He wrote this about 1970. And, um, you know, he, the, the leader of Israel was reading that book, seeing what this evangelical preacher in America was saying about the end times. Uh, and I would too, because they, they're, they're in a fulfillment of the end times. We are sons and daughters of the end times. And that doesn't, it's not peculiar, it's not weird, that's not conjecture. It is what it is. If you just think about it just in terms of the, of the progression of time, clearly this is 
later in the game than any other previous time, right? Right? So just in that. And you say, well, I don't, I don't know if it's the end times or not. Look, in 100 years, we'll all be gone. So for us, it's the end times. So we need to get a hold of this. And I'm telling you, the most important thing is the answer to the question Jesus asked at Caesarea Philippi, not the general consensus, not what Frederick Nietzsche thought or what Karl Marx thought or what Vladimir uh, 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 Lenin thought or what John Lennon thought or anybody else. It's like, what, but what do you, who do you say that I am? I say Jesus is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he's the Lord. And as it was in the Roman times, it seems to be also in modern, the modern West. And, and I, 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 I looked up this phrase and got questions about truth. Because I want to go to John 14 now, and I want to read the first six verses. Are you guys game? I'm, I'm, I'm having to finish in about 10 minutes because we're, we're going to go out and all, in, in whether rain or shine, we're going to go have a party together as a church. You're going to go get dressed up, and you're going to come back, and it's going to be awesome. Almost 2,000 years ago, truth was put on trial and judged by people who were devoted to lies. Truth was put on trial and judged by people who are devoted to lies. In fact, Jesus faced six trials in less than one full day, three of which were religious, three that were legal. In the end, few people involved uh, in those events could answer the question, what is truth? Now let's look at John 14, verse 1 through 6, and then I'm going to go back to this, this quote. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God Believe also in me. I've used that verse countless times at the, at the cemetery, at a graveside. It just lends itself to that moment. Or at the hospital when we lost a loved one and the inevitability of death. And this, let not your heart be troubled. We have higher information. We have inside privy information about how good God is, right? He's the resurrection and the life. Even if we die, we live. Amen? He says, let, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. As far as population growth goes, Jesus is a good builder and has plenty of room for all who would call on the name of the Lord. For I go to prepare a place for you. That's personal. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas, excuse me, uh, Lord, uh, I hate to sound like a doofus, but we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? In verse 6, Jesus said to him, let's say this out loud, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. 1972, hitchhiking for my restaurant job, picked up in a 1962 Chevy Impala. The Vietnam veteran that drove 10 miles out of his way to tell me, uh, to give me a ride home, also told me how Jesus changed his life. He got dishonorably discharged from the U.S. Army because he got addicted to heroin in his combat zone, and they came back to a thankless nation. 
He got involved with Eastern religion and it failed him. He cheated on his wife and his wife left him. He was broken. And then he told me that he turned to Jesus and Jesus changed his life. My first response was, it went right over my head and I said, I'm really glad you found something for yourself. I was patronizing. I meant it. And I said, "Uh, I think there are many paths to God. He said, well, I used to think that too. But Jesus said, say it with me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We don't have time to read it, but John 10 talks about going in any other way. It's a lie. Uh, I have a photograph in my office of a time I went on a fishing trip with one of the richest men in the country. Had a beautiful place. He's a wonderful guy. I enjoyed, and I, I got with him before and after this conversation. But at one point he said, Preacher, What's your view about going to heaven? Is Jesus the only way? I said, at the dinner table, I said, yes, I believe Jesus is the only way. So you're saying people go to hell without Jesus? I said, that's right. So I regard you as a narrow-minded religious bigot. I was like, okay. You, You asked me, I told you. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. That got quiet at the dinner table for a minute. And I don't hold anything against him. That was his opinion. He asked me, and I'm not in a popularity contest. I'm not, to be, I'm not antagonistic. I don't particularly want to come across like a bigot. Nobody likes to be called those kinds of things. But I'm telling you, if there's one way out, what kind of person would we be if we said there are other ways out too? And since Jesus said this, and it's exclusive, we've got to take hold of what Jesus says and go with God's way. And not be obnoxious and threatened and insecure about it, but be confident in the Lord, always showing and giving the reason for the hope we have. This is, there's a way out. When we had the boating accident, there was a, you dialed a channel and you got the U.S. Coast Guard and they came. No other channel would get the U.S. Coast Guard. It was that channel. I'm glad the person in the boat knew to call the right channel. And they came. And I'm telling you, Jesus is the name, only name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Nudge somebody next to you and say, this is pretty good so far. Now, listen to what this says here. Jesus was arrested, and he was led to a man named Annas, and he was a corrupt high priest of the Jews. Annas broke numerous Jewish laws during the trial, including holding the trial in his house, trying to induce self-accusations against the defendant and striking the defendant, who had been convicted of nothing at the time. After Annas, Jesus was led to the reigning high priest Caiaphas, who happened to be Annas' favorite son-in-law. Before Caiaphas and the Jewish Sanhedrin, many false witnesses came forward to speak against the truth. Yet nothing could be proved and no evidence of wrongdoing could be found. Caiaphas broke no fewer than seven laws while trying to convict the truth. Number one, the trial was held in secret. Number two, it was carried out at night. Number three, it, was in, it involved bribery. Sounds like modern time. Number four, the defendant had no one present to make a defense for him. Number five, The requirement of two to three witnesses could not be met. Number six, they used self-incriminating testimony against the defendant Jesus. Number seven, and lastly, they carried out the death penalty against the defendant on the same day. All these actions were prohibited by Jewish law. Regardless, 
Caiaphas declared that Jesus was guilty because Jesus, the truth, claimed to be God in the flesh, something Caiaphas called blasphemy. When morning came, the third trial of the truth, Jesus came and took place with the result that the Jewish Sanhedrin pronounced the truth that he should die. However, the Jewish council had no legal right to carry out the death penalty, so they were forced to bring the, the, Jesus to the Roman governor of the time, a man named Pontius Pilate. Pilate appointed by Tiberius Caesar as the fifth prefect of Judea and served in that capacity from A.D. 26 to 36, to 10 years. The uh, procurator uh, had power of life and death and could reverse capital sentences passed by the Sanhedrin. As Jesus stood before Pilate, more lies were brought against him. His enemies said, quote, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Luke 23.2. This was a lie as Jesus had told everyone to pay their taxes. Matthew 22.21. Render to Caesar the things of Caesar's and never spoke of himself as a challenge to Caesar, ever. Jesus wasn't the political leader that the uh, zealots wanted. After this, a very interesting conversation between Jesus and Pilate took place. And this, I want to just end with this last paragraph. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your initiative? Or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? What is truth? This has reverberated throughout the ages, church. This is where Friedrich Nietzsche came to say, now listen, truth is relative. You know, morals are relative. Ethics are situational. This is all the result of the fall of man. Humanity is never going to pull itself out of the pit of sin. Only shed blood through the one who sacrificed all can save us from our sins. Jesus is Lord over Africa. He's Lord over the Middle East. He's Lord over Europe. He's Lord over Scandinavia, Australia, New Zealand. He's Lord over North, Central, and South America, Canada, all the way to the tip of Chile. He is the Lord of the islands. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the resurrection and the life. And he's the way and he's the truth and he's the life. Now, I just want to finish with this because we're out of time, but... When, when Jesus, in John 1.14, it said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and what? Full of grace and truth. Now, I looked up modern definition, and, and this is during a postmodern world. 
I'm having to go to different dictionaries to try to go back to what was said when I was younger. They're actually trying to change the meaning of words. And trying to neuter the idea of truth is alarming. Here's what I found. Truth is defined as conformity to fact or actuality. Conformity to fact or actuality. Number two, it's reality. Truth is truth. It is what it is. Now, people will say, well, that's my truth. I, I listened to a, a, a band with, that had three uh, uh, very strong-willed uh, guys that have real healthy egos, and they were all telling the story about how their band began. And two of them sort of had the same story, and one of them had a different opinion about where they met, how they first heard their harmonies, and how they connected. And the guy on the end, he said, well, that's his truth, and this is my truth. And I, and I thought, well, that's a, that, I, you have to read, I wouldn't use the word truth, because there is a reality. Two plus two equals four. So if a math teacher comes in and says, well, you know, not always, then that just throws out all the homework we had to do when we were in middle school. By the way, I'm getting ready for the men's breakfast, and I'm studying about manhood. And, and uh, in, in this book I was reading, uh, some guy said something funny. He said, middle school is most like closer to hell than anything you'll experience on the earth. So you young guys, I want you to come to the Ben's breakfast. I want to support you. I'm in in this and alive today from all that I've been through to get to this point to provide leadership for you. The devil's a liar and he can't win. Right, John Moore? God is good. Last point. Truth is, get ready. Might want to write this down. The opposite of that which is false. Revelation. What? Write that down. It's the opposite of what is false. Jesus spoke to the Jews who believed. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I was an unbeliever sitting on the front seat of that Impala. Remember, the guy could have gone down the highway and dropped me off, and I'd have to try to figure out how to walk 10 more miles at 1 o'clock in the morning on a November day. California, it's not cold like St. Louis, but it was chilly. And I was a vulnerable, young, skinny teenager, full of fears. And the guy drove, and he pivoted. You know, Gary Chapman, the Baptist minister, counseled for so much and got the revelation, I think, is one of the finest things we've heard in the 20th century about the five love languages and the acts of service. I was on Manchester Road at a shoe store. My wife was in there with our grandkids. I had enough. I tried to escape. I went out in the parking lot, and I saw a me- medical company, and it had, a, it had a, a, a backlit sign right there on the edge of the highway of the road, and it said, acts of service is our love language. So I thought there's a culture of Christians in there, and they've, they've taken what Gary Chapman, Pastor Gary Chapman said. That's what the Vietnam veteran spoke in my heart. That's why I think I started Service International. We started in 1985. I'm a product of a service action of a believer that gave credibility and gave, it elevated his words. It gave him permission to speak. It opened my heart that he was willing to go out of his way, showed that he was, he was a, I saw the content of his character and that he, what kind of a, he cared about me. He wasn't threatening. 
the ride I had before was dangerous. The guy was under the influence of some substances. He was not, uh, against my will, not letting me out of his car. The contrast was glaring. It was the devil and Jesus. It was the world and the church. It was evil and it was good. You can't tell me there's a blur between right and wrong. These, these directors that are so good in film at blurring the lines between good and evil... Man, it'd be good if they back off and just show evil as evil as good as good. Isaiah said in the end times that woe to you who call good, good evil and evil good, right? There's such a, there was such a tendency for flipping in this period in Rome in the context in which Jesus was born. There's, there, was such a, there was such a tendency in that. And, and in this hour, we've got to sharpen our skill set about knowing who Jesus is, what Jesus is capable of doing, who we are in him. That's what I liked about it. He said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He said, Jesus said, bingo, bullseye, jackpot, Peter. Way to go, bro. Awesome, broseph. He said, uh, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I'm going to tell you who you are, who you really are. See, this is another thing. When I was young, I had a pastor who got a revelation on who we are in Christ, and he taught it, and I, it was revolutionary for him and for me. I, I'm standing stable from the influence of going to those services and hearing that good preaching from that man of God and that message of who we are in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old things pass away and all things become new. And he says, and I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. When you pray, you'll believe you receive. When you speak to your mountains, guess what? They'll be removed. When you resist the devil, guess what? He takes a hike. You get an agreement. If two of you agree on earth as touching anything they ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who's in heaven. And the Lord went with them and confirmed the word with signs following. That's why I'm teaching on Friday nights, and you should come to Friday night, so I'm teaching a comprehensive series on the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14. I just spent six months on the, the, the love walk because, boy, we need a whole lifetime of the love walk. And in this service, I want you guys to understand who Jesus is. Who do men say that I am? Well, you're this, you're that. You're a, a Jewish guy that caught, got, led a revolt and you got crucified for it. But no, you're not a prophet. You're not resurrected. So then, then in the seminaries, there are seminaries. No, he's not resurrected. How could somebody after three days? To, to, I heard one theolog, theologian say, I don't find it plausible that brain matter after four days with no blood, three days with no blood could, could work again and you know, well, what about Lazarus? Well, then they wouldn't believe Lazarus. That would be, what is it all, allegory? And then you neuter that out of the message? It's less than a philosophy. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That's the key. Well, why are you preaching an Easter message? You keep going with Christmas, Easter. Don't you know it's the end of October, Pastor Jeff? I know it's the end of the service, but I'm going to tell you, it's the beginning of our awakening on who Jesus is. We all are required to answer the question, but who do you say that I am? You're the Lord, but not distant like the Lord, because I believe when I was sitting in the car with that guy on that, that bench seat on that big, wide Chevy Impala that the lowriders love, that 62 Impala, it, it, to this day, it's still the lowrider classic. It, to me, it's the, the environment that I got to receive, hear about the gospel, and it light came to me. That's why I appreciate 
I'm, you know, I appreciate it. I appreciate that at a specific time, Jesus arrived in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus showed up in that car. Jesus is a present help here right now as we pray for these wars and rumors of wars and famine and pestilence and all the garbage we're seeing around us. We lift up our eyes because our redemption draws nigh. Let's all stand up on our feet. Come on, let's go. Hallelujah. Let's go. Let's go and go forward in the call. Let's go forward in the purposes of God. Let's lift up our hands and say this together. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. There's salvation in no other. Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, Savior of my soul, Head of the church, Healer of my body, Vindicator, Deliverer, my salvation, my all in all. God, thank you for sending your son on a rescue mission to redeem my life from the pit, to get me on track, and to load me with abundant life. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your protection. Thank you for guidance. Open doors. Be with my words. Help me to speak unfiltered, uninterrupted, anointed, loving truth everywhere I go. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.